Curious Naked Diatribes. La insurrección comienza en el corazón de cada persona que suena con un mundo mejor. Insurrection starts in the heart of each person who dreams about a better world. Subcomandante Marcos of the Zapatist Army for National Liberation. Welcome back to the second installment of my conversation with Dr. Alex Kazanabesh on the Zapatistas 30 years after their uprising in Chiapas, Mexico. If you're unfamiliar with the Zapatistas and why they began their armed struggle with the Mexican government in 1994, I would recommend starting with part one. Alex provides an overview and some historical context for the uprising, including the signing of the North American Free Trade Agreement. Look for the link to that episode in the show notes. For an MP3 of the entire uninterrupted interview, please click on the link in the show notes. And now, part two of a conversation with Dr. Alex Kaznavich. The history and the lived realities of those communities as they were experiencing them at the time and as they were, you know, really confronting the reality that they they wouldn't be able to exist as they as they did, even in the precarious conditions that they did at the time, if they didn't stand up for that right to live on territory that they collectively controlled. Yeah, many on the left are speculating if what we're seeing now is the, you know, the end of this, this neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and we're seeing kind of a decline in that, perhaps, but that remains to be seen, I guess. But yeah. Yeah. can you talk a little bit more about how the Mexican government responded to the Zapatista uprising in 1994 and why it initially agreed to negotiations? Yeah, so very predictably, um, in the, the first days after the new year, um, the Zapatistas rise up, they seize uh, large parts of Chiapas, they seize several of the uh, municipal seats, including the old colonial capital of San Cristobal de las Casas, which is significant for a lot of reasons, not least because it's a big tourist town, so all the right. tourists are there on November, uh, sorry, mm -hmm. January 1st, watching the revolution <laughs> unfold. Um, and and um, Immediately, the Mexican state responds as anybody familiar with um, so-called counterinsurgency operations in the global south, like just pulling the page right out of the textbook. So they send in the military. And for all the talk about Mexico kind of being like on the cusp of a developed country, but, you know, a so-called developing country, their military is thoroughly first world and very closely um, linked to the U.S., obviously, uh, trained and funded and all this kind of stuff. So they send in an absolute first world military and, uh, you know, indiscriminately bomb villages who may or may not be affiliated with the Zapatistas go house to house, carrying out summary executions, extrajudicial killings. They basically terrorize um, uh, villagers, anybody they can find who they think might be a Zapatista. And um, and it, and the Zapatistas retreat very quickly, the the insurgents retreat before this onslaught and, and sort of retreat back into the jungle and into the canyons where their, their bases are. Um, and at this point, you know, to most observers, this is like literally just January 2nd, 3rd, 4th. It looks like this is going to follow the same script that we've seen elsewhere, where you, now it's just going to be this awful military occupation, that there's going to be a lot of collective punishment, and that, you know, there goes that, that moment, um, that opening. And surprisingly... I think because the Zapatistas don't have many 
especially above ground connections to any element of Mexican civil society. There no existing, they, you know, they weren't a public group beforehand. Nobody really knew about their existence, although lots of human rights workers and others on the ground in Chiapas through the 90s knew there was something cooking and like pressure building. Um, but in the absence of any direct connections, in the absence of, you know, affiliations with political parties or trade unions, um, the a huge portion of Mexican civil society sees the justness of the Zapatista uprising and really responds very spontaneously in the form of just gigantic public marches in solidarity with them in the days and weeks that followed the uprising. And the demands are very clear. Um, the demands on the part of so many different Mexicans marching in the streets is that the government declare a unilateral ceasefire, that uh, they sit down and negotiate with the Zapatistas. And, um, and that's basically the two main demands. So what's really incredible about this is, you know, just to put this in, in, in terms people can think about, right? Imagine like an insurgency exploding in your country where you don't have any direct connections. You're not sure of necessarily of the, you know, of the personal goodness of any of these people. But because of the way the revolution uh, acts and presents itself, it's so clearly... Um, an uprising of really the most oppressed in Mexican society, and that's indigenous people. It's clearly an authentic and grassroots movement, and it's clearly calling not for violence and um, and the seizure of power, but uh, something many Mexican social movements had been fighting for for decades, which is the realization of an authentic democracy in Mexico. So uh, the response is overwhelming. You got marches of like like a million people in Mexico City um, demanding the government and the counterinsurgency operations. And in the face of this, the government of Carlos Salinas at the time does just that. They They pull their troops back and they say they're going to negotiate with the Zapatistas, which is really an incredible moment. Like, I think, you know, for those of us in the North, like, it's one thing to think about this, right? Because we live in a different <laughs> political context. But in the Global South, the idea that you would have a, a an insurgency and it would be dealt with with anything other than brutal military force is really impossible to think through. Um, this is not at all similar to the Sandinistas or anybody else in the... Um, it, out of that sort of long legacy of um, rev revolutionary struggle, armed struggle in the global south. So as the Mexican historian Adolfo Gili has said, I think really eloquently, he says, you know, we need to remember that nobody negotiates because they, they recognize simply the humanity of the people that they're negotiating with. They negotiate because they're compelled to, right? And so it's the, 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 not just the force of arms, but the moral weight of the Zapatista's call for justice that resonates with Mexican people and compels the government to do what it otherwise would never have done and to sit down um, and to try and carve out a negotiated settlement with the Zapatistas. And of course, it doesn't go that way. Uh, the negotiations uh, aren't, aren't, uh, aren't a waste of time, aren't, aren't just a dead end, but it doesn't end the struggle. It really doesn't um, solve the underlying issues, but it's still remarkable and significant at the time that, um, that that happens. And yeah, 
the incredible inspiration and connections made by that moment of recognition between people who didn't really have much previous contact is remarkable. Yeah. So that's kind of my next question is what, you know, what were the San Andres Accords and, you know, were they ever honored? Uh, great question. So the San Andreas Accords uh, were the first set of negotiations carried out by the Mexican federal government with the Zapatistas in the town of San Andres in Chiapas. And um, they were about indigenous rights and autonomy. Um, they were they were signed in 1997, but never actually uh, implemented, at least not in the form that they were intended to be um, because the government claimed that it couldn't get them passed. Uh, they couldn't get, you know, Congress to accept it, uh, whether that's true or not, whether the ruling class ever had any intention of doing that or just wanted to engage in the spectacle of negotiations, I think is an open question. But the accords are still really significant because the ones negotiated, for the Zapatistas anyway, they were very clear. They're like, our struggle is not about regional autonomy for indigenous people. Our struggle is a national struggle for democracy, justice, and liberty for all Mexicans. So one thing the Zapatistas were really clear about from the get-go is that, yes, they were indigenous, but they were also Mexican. They proudly flew the Mexican flag and, uh, and, and saw themselves as the you know, authentic inheritors of the nation alongside other Mexicans. And they had no... So when anarchists uh, from the global north wanted to sort of project anarchism onto the Zapatistas, they were really clear. They're like, we're not, we're not anarchists, but you know, we respect your struggle and we respect the struggle of revolutionaries elsewhere. But... Um, yeah, the San Andres Accords were a great example of them both getting the government to sit down and to agree to a set of principles that had they been acted upon would have been a really significant step towards both regional and indigenous communal autonomy within the scope of a modern nation state, which actually would have been super exciting for so many, you know, looking at um, whether it's the United States or Canada or New Zealand or Australia, where other significant indigenous struggles are occurring. This idea of, you know, how a modern nation state built out of settler colonialism could actually honorably learn to live alongside of original inhabitants of the territories. Like, that's super exciting. And unfortunately, that was never realized, of course, the Mexican state as soon as it could resorted to the old uh, bag of, of counterinsurgency and in part because um, uh, this infamous memo that was leaked by the Chase Man, uh, written by the Chase Manhattan Bank at the time, one of the largest financial banks in the world, uh, but that, you know, had significant investments in Mexico and, and wrote to the Mexican government essentially saying, you need to demonstrate your control over your territory, otherwise investors won't, won't like, they won't invest in you. They, they don't wow. think their investments are secure. So, um, yeah, a lot of this was kind of linked to that memo. The memo never said eliminate the Zapatistas, but it essentially said you have to demonstrate mm -hmm. forceful control. You know, you don't play around with property in this way. And so the Accords at that time were essentially abandoned and the government returned to lo like so-called low-intensity warfare. Now, there, there were... Uh, laws passed. There was a law passed later on in 2001, I believe, um, that that was sort of like a hollowed out version of the San Andres Accords that the Zapatistas and almost every other indigenous group in Mexico condemned as um, a step backwards in indigenous rights, actually, in the territory, which used a phrase like 
indigenous communities are essentially public objects of concern rather than, you know, so in, it kind of infantilized them yet again, which is, you know, a double betrayal of the accords in a lot of ways. But I think, you know, again, you know, 30 years later, it's easy to say, oh, well, those accords, the great tragedy of them is that they weren't implemented. But I'd like to spin it the other way and say one of the most interesting things and important things about them is that they were negotiated in the first place. They stand as this historical and legal document that indicates that um, there are ways forward within the rubric of the modern nation state and all of its like bureaucratic awfulness right. that uh, groups aiming for real liberation can actually achieve and that there is a way of thinking about, you know, um, what we might call like a non-excluding modern world, right? Where like this question, um, and certainly in Canada, I know we wrestle with this a lot, like this whole question of like, what does multiculturalism in the modern state mean, blah, blah, blah. Often that question is addressed really superficially. And um, it always still comes back to this idea in Canada of this absurd idea of two founding nations, the French and the English, right? Um, and in Mexico, I think the, the importance of the San Andres Accords really was to actually look at what um, building a society made up of many different people that could honor those different traditions and different aspirations might look like without creating a hierarchy of like political inequality amongst them. It was a really exciting moment. And I think that we should still see it that way would be my argument. I think it's, it's still an amazing uh, testament to that, even though the state did what the state usually does, which right. is to protect right. vested interests, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. More of the same. <laughs> so, yeah. so the Zapatista movement uh, s still enjoys pretty considerable popular support. Can mm -hmm. you talk about, you know, have the various Mexican presidents since Carlos Salinas, how they dealt with the movement? Was there any significant shift when Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador entered office? I mean, I think... I think there has been a bit of a shift. I think Obrador is certainly an, like, you know, he comes from what we might call a left populist tradition. Um, I think the, like, whether he's delivered on that, you know, is is one of these contentious uh, lefty points of argument, but maybe I won't, I won't go down that road. I think the Zapatistas since 2001, in many ways, since the, um, since the end of the Institutional Revolutionary Party's 80-year dictatorship, which yeah. is essentially what they had. Right. Um, different politicians, beginning with uh, with Fox in, in the early 2000s, have really tried different strategies, borrowing from I don't know, a grab bag of kind of like liberal like attempts to conscript, demobilize, um, uh, you know, the Zapatista struggle through either negotiations or through trying to buy them off, um, through ignoring them, through effectively, ironically, and I think this is one of the things that people don't realize, kind of like letting them do their thing and hoping they'll go away, right. which is bizarre. <laughs> but like, I mean, this is the thing that I think people should realize is that regardless of the legal recognition, the Zapatistas have effectively controlled somewhere around a third of the state of Chiapas for the last 30 years or so, um, like without a legal recognition of autonomy, but a de facto one, and in fact have won over 
lots of people in communities around them who are not pro-Zapatista to begin with simply because they like they run society better like their court system their justice system works they actually like have development projects and open medical clinics that stay open <laughs> you know they, right. they are interested in educate like all these things that the state had promised for years and years and years but never delivered on and then this revolutionary movement without any um without any resources from that state, managed to deliver these things in ways that made people's lives better. I think that was truly remarkable. Um, But yeah, every once in a while, a president will get worked up about the Zapatistas, either, uh, you know, in Fox's famous cowboy-like persona, he promised he was going to resolve the conflict in 15 minutes. Well, that didn't happen. He and <laughs> he and um, Zapatista spokespeople had this kind of famous back-and-forth banter. Um a lot of people focused on that, but I think, you know, it's super important to acknowledge that once the PRI was out of the picture, the, the former um, ruling party, the Zapatistas beginning in the early 2000s made the uh, decision to basically stop paying so much attention to the formal political scene and instead to just go about building those relations of autonomy on the ground. And so really it almost hasn't mattered to them as much the way that different political uh, personalities have come through the presidential office. I think Obrador, you know, um, a lot of people believed he was going to be better than uh, previous presidents. The Zapatistas uh, denounced him as well. You know, in the lead up, they said, none of these people are ever going to be our saviors. Uh, They didn't, you know, it wasn't really a thorough denunciation. But if you think that this system is going to lead to anything other than what we've seen has been their fairly consistent um, response to that. So, yeah, I mean, the low intensity warfare that that was at its height in the late 90s up to the early 2000s that is somewhat abated. Um, that's a good news story, obviously. But, uh, you know, I think it's it's probably fair to say that a broad-based policy of kind of like social neglect and hoping that the movement will burn itself out has been one of the major planks of uh, governance ever since they learned they could not effectively eliminate the Zapatistas. They couldn't destroy them at the root. They couldn't uproot them. They couldn't buy buy people off. Um, But that there was too much rootedness in the in the social realities of of the southeast that they they would never be able to get rid of them that way um so yeah that that very typical strategy of kind of hoping that they'll become exhausted and defeated lack of resources all these kinds of things and and that has yet to happen i think really remarkably and is a testament to the way they've built their movement the way they have built like an intergenerational struggle that is self-sustaining now Right. Yeah. It's interesting to, to see, it, you know, in watching documentaries and so on there, you know, they're basically rebuilding society from the ground up in their own way. And that's, you know, it's, you know, this is just really interesting to see. So they mm-hmm. are uh, an armed movement. They, they have never surrendered their arms, is my understanding. You kind of hinted at this before, but what, what kind of sets them apart from mm. other revolutionary movements in Latin America, like, you know, Cuba, 1959, Nicaragua, 1979, Mm -hmm. what makes them different and enduring? So one of the things that sets them apart is um, their object of struggle, I guess I'd say, whereas in almost every previous leftist revolutionary movement, particularly in the global south, but even elsewhere, the the object of desire was always the state. 
It's like if we can take the state then and its big old bureaucratic apparatus, we can transform the rest of society through it, right? So either, whether you're thinking about the, you know, the communist revolution in Russia, we're, ta- we're thinking about uh, Mao's revolution, we're thinking about Cuba, we're thinking about the Sandinistas, we're thinking about the Shining Path. Like ultimately, the goal is to unseat the existing ruling class and then in a fairly top-down way, transform society from the top-down. Right. Um, and the Zapatistas offered a very different vision of struggle, arguably one that, uh, you know, like if, I mean, it's fair to say that if you read their declaration of war, which is the first declaration of the Lacandon jungle, which is issued on January 1st, 1994, that statement reads like a lot closer to a lot of this sort of familiar history. Although I'd still point out, because people will, you know, they sort of like, the detractors will say that uh, the Zapatistas were savvy and quickly realized after January 1st that they weren't going to be able to actually enact their revolution. They weren't going to be able to make it to Mexico City. The army was simply too well-resourced, too well-trained, uh, that they weren't going to be able to, so blo- so then they backtracked and decided, and I think that's that's a very unfair reading of the movement. It it. It ignores its history. Uh, it ignores the struggles that went on within the Zapatista movement in order to build it into the thing it became. But importantly, it also ignores the fact that embedded in that first declaration are all the hallmarks of their struggle going forward. So they identify what they're after. And, and, the, and the, the items on their list are not political power. They're things like land, health care, peace, justice, education. So their list is revolutionary and modernist in that sense. So a lot of others would agree with that. But on the other hand, it totally ignores uh, the seizure of state power and the idea that they're going to implement the revolution on behalf of everybody else. I'd say the second thing is their emphasis on democracy. Um, so rather, again, than thinking about, okay, we're going to have a dictatorship of the of the revolution until we're ready to move forward, which is effectively what, you know, that's what Cuba is. I'm not trying to... Uh, cast aspersions on uh, the Cuban Revolution, super important revolutionary struggle. But at the same time, you know, we do have this sort of revolutionary interregnum in most of these struggles where it's like, okay, then the revolutionary bosses take over and you got to listen to them and nobody deviates from that. And then when we're ready, we'll become like a democratic society. And of course, unsurprisingly, that moment when the new elites give up power (laughs) never seems to arrive, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So the Zapatistas were very clear about that, that at no point did they want to seize that power. They did want to unseat the existing illegitimate power holders, but then immediately open up a space for democratic uh, processes like that were real and authentic and that involved all Mexicans. And the third thing uh, I'd say about that is that they quickly speak a language that has that departs so dramatically from the revolutionary bureaucraties of previous revolutionary struggles. So I mean, people will talk up Marcos's writings in this way a lot, and certainly he's a beautiful writer and 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 spokesperson. But it really like it weaves its way through so many of the Zapatistas' communications with both national and international civil society, where they they write revolutionary stories based in the indigenous cosmology of their territory. So, in these incredible kind of open-ended, like revolutionary mythical stories about um, 
you know, about spirits of ancestors or indigenous gods or or animals or uh, revolutionary figures of the past imagined as having. So, like, you get this incredible, playful, open-ended discourse that is really meant to invite other people who also feel like their lives are up against those cutting edges of the status quo and they don't have any dignity, they don't have any choice, they don't have any you know, self-determination in their lives. So it's a really famous communique that Marcos writes where there's one point where the, the Mexican government thinks he, they figured out who he really is, right? How, like who his true identity is. And rather than responding and saying, you got it wrong or whatever, the Zapatistas respond in, in what will become like a hallmark of their style and say, actually, Marcos is gay. He's a woman. He's a worker. <laughs> he's a, you know, he's a trash collector on the subway. He's a an unemployed teacher. He's And they basically go through and, and, and list all these subordinated positions in society and says, like, if you are somewhere your humanity is being denied and you decide that what you're going to do is struggle to reclaim it, then you too are a Zapatista and you, you can also be Marcos. Anybody can put on the mask and say, I am Marcos. And it, in that moment, I think like it's an invitation to this open-ended and primarily nonviolent struggle. I mean, this is the interesting thing that I think the Zapatistas do this beautiful dance, as you've talked about, right? Like, they they to this day remain a movement in arms because they're aware that like if they if they say they're going to lay down their arms, then they open themselves up to this um, incredible repression again, and. Um, and so they refuse that. They, they've learned the, <laughs> the lessons of revolutionary history in that sense. But at the same time, they like since the early days of 94, the Zapatistas have not fired a single offensive shot against the Mexican military. They have at points had to use their weapons in a defensive fashion. But really, even then, it's been so limited. And their primary planks of struggle have been this attempt to build a broad-based, above-ground, nonviolent, but radical movement for justice, dignity, liberty, and democracy. And and really, like, that's become the basis of their struggle. And it just, you know, I think it spoke to so many people who were desperately tired, first of all, of the endless cycle of insurgency and counterinsurgency all across the global south, which, of course, has resulted in nothing but these, like, atrocities and mass graves and, you know, all of this, um, and no betterment. In society, but also people who were like really cynical about being just invited and conscripted back into the status quo, who felt, well, okay, like I don't want to pick up a gun and go to war, but on the other hand, I don't want to simply be told that I'm going to go and cast my vote for the same set of ruling class functionaries and it's not going to get me anywhere. There's got to be something other than that. And the Zapatistas really provided that, that, that revolutionary horizon towards which we can struggle, where we're not sacrificing those aspirations, but we're also acknowledging that violence can't be the way we build the world we want, because it will always retain the characteristics of like of the tools we use to bring it into being. So, yeah, it's this really unusual dance. I mean, compare it to the shining path in Peru, leaving like, you know, dead dogs strung up in trees and these kinds of things. It's a way of terrorizing villagers <laughs> into into complicity or, you know, or or bureaucratic um, uh, 
revolutions elsewhere that really use this dry, dusty, Marxist-Leninist language. I mean, the Zapatistas learned all of those lessons. Like, I mean, Marcos and others, the urban revolutionaries, were obviously well-schooled in um, in a whole bunch of revolutionary ideologies, Marxism not least among them. But it's that story that I think we need to take super seriously of them going to the South essentially as um, urban revolutionaries and just confronting the reality, the indigenous realities of the far Southeast and being transformed by them and being welcomed into those communities after that transformation occurs as as non-indigenous people, but as, as people who are seen as comrades in the struggle. So, like, you have all these things that trouble, like, so much of the nonsense politics we have amongst, on the left today around, you know, facile notions of identity or any of these things, or um, even, like, sort of celebrating really uh like formal elements like oh we have to make every every decision by consensus or something in order to the zapatistas have always said that like it's not about hanging our hats on a single kind of way of doing things what it is it's about acknowledging that the struggle is always one that's being renewed from the grassroots and they talk about how the struggle is more powerful now than it was 30 years ago because the people who are at the forefront are now the kids who were born into that struggle right. and have grown up within that context. Right. So I think that's a love, that's an amazing, it's not like, oh, Lenin. It's not like, oh, Che Guevara. It's right. not looking back to Marcos and saying, oh, that was our great revolutionary hero. We're trying to live up to him. It's like, no, actually, we, the the generations coming of age now are are the are the, the 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 vanguard of the revolution precisely because they're the ones who have been raised within it. And I think that's a beautiful message. This concludes part two of a conversation with Dr. Alex Kaznavish on the Zapatistas 30 years after their uprising in Chiapas, Mexico. The third and final part in the series releases Thursday, January 4, 2024. For an MP3 of the entire uninterrupted interview, please click on the link in the show notes. Curious Naked Diatribes is part of the Javi Media Network on the web at javimedia.net. Send email to info at javimedia.net. Javi Media.